the microphone is the sound. Okay? So how'd it go today? Smooth sailing, totally peaceful, easy money, almost enlightened. Just imagine how good tomorrow's going to be. Even after many, many years of sitting retreats, um, there's something that my mind continues to do, and I don't know if yours does, but it, uh, it always thinks that it knows what it's going to be like some idea, and you're like, oh, well, it was like this last time, or, um, but I, I find that my experience is that uh, the, the direct experience almost never matches up with what my ideas about retreat are going to be, and sometimes I come to retreat expecting it to be difficult, and I have some ease in the experience, or sometimes I expect it to be easy, and I have quite a bit of difficulty and uh, a loud mind and I hope that you can some level or another just uh, settle into accepting that whatever um, this first day was like was perfect for you just where you're at and in your process, difficult or uh, not so difficult, easy, pleasant, unpleasant. That kind of just broad acceptance as much as you can that it, uh, it is what it is, as they say. And Mark's encouragement yesterday to really postpone uh, judgment about how it's going. I wanted to reflect with you a little bit tonight about the process of, uh, of practice and uh, of this process of, of awakening, the possibility of awakening that we are uh, engaging in, and a little bit of um, what to expect and, and how to, to work with uh, some of the challenges that will inevitably be part of uh, meditation practice and um, awakening process. And I love the, um, the teaching, the story of, of the Buddha, of Siddhartha Gautama, feeling so dissatisfied with his experience and his I think that his life's experience was, was very different than mine and than many of us. Um, although some people can really directly relate to this uh, young man who had everything and um, you know, was a prince on some level, uh, born into wealth and power and abundance and, uh, and was unsatisfied. 
and found that no matter how much pleasure, no matter how much attention, no matter how much power, money, that there was something missing. And uh, although my life's experience was different than that, um, I can just relate to that dissatisfaction. And I think that on some level or another, it is dissatisfaction that brings us to the practice. If you were totally satisfied, completely satisfied in your life, maybe you wouldn't be meditating. There's actually some level of dissatisfaction or dukkha, the first noble truth, difficulty, stress, suffering, uh, unsatisfactoriness that motivates us to come practice. And that um, I think for the Buddha got him, in, in the title of our retreat, got him curious of uh, is there something more available? Is there, uh, is freedom possible? Is true happiness, contentment, ease, well-being, nirvana, nibbana, is, is there an end to this suffering available? And it was his curiosity, his interest, uh, maybe we could say confidence or faith, that said, I'm going to, I'm going to find out. I'm going to dedicate my life's energy to trying to find freedom. And then lucky for us, he was successful. His curiosity, uh, and I liked uh, what Mark said the other night about seeing him more as a kind of this scientist, this neuroscience of, of really looking at like what's the nature of the human mind and, and what's, the, what's happening here in this mind-body heart process that makes even pleasure not so satisfactory. So most of you are very familiar with the story of him leaving home and going out and finding different teachers and different techniques and keeping that uh, curiosity and that maybe passion for truth and commitment to truth that even when he found the teacher that said I've taught you everything I know and you're enlightened as far as I'm concerned him being true to himself and saying "Um, yeah I can get really concentrated and all of my suffering temporarily disappears but when I'm not really concentrated I'm still attached I'm still craving I'm still dissatisfied I'm still unhappy, and I want a freedom that's not dependent on a rarefied meditation experience. I want a freedom that I can live, that is practical, that is maybe permanent, something that actually I live moment to moment, not just when I'm in a deep meditative state. And he kept searching, kept that investigation, that curiosity. Learned what he could from his people of his time and then uh, went into that period of asceticism of thinking like, what well, must be, there's something about this body <laughs> that's problematic. This body's craving for pleasure. This body's aversion to pain. Maybe if I do this strong, intense uh, denial renunciation, 
asceticism that I can break the body's craving. And after years of that, seeing this, this actually, it hasn't worked. I can fast until I'm almost dead. I can deny my, all of my desires. I can torture my body. And I can, I've learned a lot of tolerance for pain, but it has not led to happiness. I'm, I'm no, I'm not free. And in that shift, and I, I, I've never read or heard a really good explanation of um, how the Buddha discovered mindfulness, but he discovered, and maybe it was just trial and error. He tried concentration by itself and it didn't work. He tried extreme renunciation, and it didn't work. He tried indulging in pleasure, and it didn't work. And this sort of like, that's not this, not this, not this. And he said, what if I just pay attention? Spacious, present time, non-judgmental, investigative, kind, responsive awareness. And just through this investigation, this curiosity with his own mind, how it works, he discovered mindfulness, not single-pointed, concentrated, ignoring, but turning his attention towards what we're doing, what we're instructing you in. But the Buddha discovered this. It didn't exist before him. It's not found in any other traditions or scriptures pre-Siddhartha Gautama. After him, he certainly influenced a lot of traditions. And discovering mindfulness and saying, okay, I'm just going to stay, stay with it, stay present. I'm going to walk mindfully. I'm going to sit mindfully. I'm going to get really interested in my mind, my body. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to look directly at to the point where he felt close and he said, I'm going to take this seat at the base of this tree, this Bodhi tree, the oh, tree of awakening, the famous uh, scene of his awakening. And in some ways, you are, whether you know it or not, following in the Buddha's footsteps. Uh, on one level or another, most of us, we've looked to the world for happiness, and if the world provided happiness, worldliness, sense pleasures, material things, if it provided happiness, you probably wouldn't be here trying mindfulness. But there's some sense that we all have that what we're looking for isn't found in stuff or in sense and pleasure. And so you come to retreat and you take your seat and you say, I'm going to get curious, I'm going to investigate, I'm going to look directly at my own mind, I'm going to uh, look directly at my emotions, at my sensations, watch my breath, try to break my addiction to planning. And we see how difficult that is, but we continue persevering. 
So the Buddha takes that seat under the Bodhi tree. He's getting close. And it's almost like a suicidal. He says, I'm going to just sit here until I either get free and see clearly or I die. Liberty or death, very American of the Buddha. Or maybe American is very Buddhist, I don't know. But there's liberty, liberation, not the not, not the violent, maybe that's the wrong analogy, not like we're going to fight the British or something, but uh, I'm just going to sit here until I'm free. I didn't mean to point at you, Mark, when I said fight the British. <laughs> but we're not paying taxes. And as he sits there, as you've been sitting here all day and walking mindfully, what happens? Attacked by Mara. And Mara attacks the Buddha with sexual fantasy. You don't have to raise your hands, but I imagine some of you have been lost in some sexual fantasies today. I know it's not proper to admit that, but of course the mind thinks about sex. And I think this is important. The Buddha is sitting there on the verge of enlightenment and he's thinking about sex. All this meditation stuff in his mind says, you would be happy if you were getting laid. If just, you don't need this meditation stuff. Mara attacks and says, sex, that's the answer. And the Buddha says, I know you. I know this pattern of mind. I know lust. I know craving. I know that sex will not provide the deep abiding happiness that I seek. That it's another fleeting pleasure. And I don't want to completely miss nor dismiss the uh, uh, beauty and wonder of intimacy and of uh, you know, healthy sexual connection but that we all know that it is not the cause of permanent happiness. And the Buddha sees that as his mind. Now, I think it's important. Some Buddhists will actually take this scene, Mara, as, um, as this sort of real external sort of demon kind of trying to tempt the Buddha. Um, my understanding, my perspective, is that Mara, although it's personified in the myth and in the story of the Buddha's uh, enlightenment, it, Mara is not a person. Mara is just analogy. It's just the mind. It's our own mind. Uh, it's confusion. Sometimes what we call the hindrances, the five hindrances, like another name for the five hindrances are Mara. And the five hindrances are craving, lustful, sensual craving, uh, aversion and resistance and, and anger, uh, restlessness and sloth, less restlessness and anxiety and uh, sloth and torpor and doubt. And so as you went through your meditation practice and, and the stage of the retreat, perhaps you've 
been visited by Mara, and you've had some doubts, and you've had some restlessness and some sleepiness. I was kind of taking a nap with Mara earlier, just out, sloth, tuned out, sleepy. All of the meditation practice and investigation and curiosity that the Buddha had done um, up to that moment was that he was able to turn towards these afflictive emotions and these cravings and these mental and physical experiences. And he replied to Mara each time, I know you. I know this quality of mind. I've been paying close attention. And so you can't actually... Uh, get me. <laughs> I'm not going to be seduced because I know this thought. I know this feeling. I know my own mind because I've been watching it. I know my emotions because I've been sitting with them. I know the impermanent and impersonal nature of what's happening here because I've been being mindful of it. I'm not so lost in identification or what we might call misidentification. I don't think this mind is who I am anymore. I don't think that uh, satisfying my next desire is going to work. I've seen through that. And so he replies as Mara comes with lust. I see you. I know you. I'm intimately uh, aware of the unsatisfactory nature of trying to satisfy craving, of trying to find happiness through sense pleasures. Now, I'd imagine that you know that. Do you know that already? You kind of know that, right? We all know that. but maybe <laughs> not fully. If we really knew that, if we really had the insight and could live that insight, and maybe there's the difference, I should use a different word, there's the intellectual, mental uh, kind of uh, understanding. We understand that, most of us do. Some of you are new and maybe are like, what is he talking about? I am convinced that I'll be happy if I have enough pleasure. <laughs> and maybe, that, maybe that's true for, for some of you. When lust, craving, fails, Mara then attacks with anger, violence, hatred, resentment, said that the armies of Mara attack with violence and all of the ways that the mind can be violent in small ways. I, I would say that the, the judging mind is, a, a, a is an act of violence. When we judge ourselves, we judge others. Comparing, envy, uh, jealousy, uh, all of there's these small ways that the mind is 
unkind. And then there's the big hatred, resentment, spite, where there's real revenge fantasies in the mind, real violence. And again, uh, the image of the Buddha sitting there and his mind is being violent and Mara is attacking and it said as, it's as though arrows and spears are being thrown at him and that uh, he's met, he's, he's known his mind so that again he replies, I know you and, and I know the wise response actually to the pain, to this painful thought to this painful state of heart, state of mind. And I know compassion, that the wise response to that violence, that inner violence, to the resistance to pain, the hatred of pain, the resentment towards pain and those who cause us pain, harm, is compassion and forgiveness. And so then the image that many have seen in art or heard about or read about is that these arrows and spears then become flowers. That compassion, the wise knowing of how to respond wisely to pain, transforms hatred into compassion. Aversion into acceptance and tolerance and a kind and compassionate relationship to the mind that is in pain. And again, it's this relationship with Mara where he says, I know what to do here. I'm not caught off guard. I'm paying close attention. And then Mara says, well, I'm going to bring out my, you know, okay, lust didn't work and hatred didn't work, but delusion almost always works. Doubt. I'm going to attack with doubt. And doubt is said to be the strongest hindrance, the most debilitating hindrance for meditators. Because if you're, you know, you can sit with some craving. I'm sure you sat with some craving today. And you can sit with some pain, maybe some anger, some. You can sit with it. But doubt. If you doubt your capacity, if you really believe the mind that says, you can't do this, then you'll stop sitting altogether. That it's the hindrance that will stop our practice, not just make it difficult, not just slow us down, but will actually get us out the door, off the cushion. And so then Mara attacks Buddha with doubt. And uh, he says, who do you think you are? Everyone's unhappy, Buddha. Why do you think you deserve to be happy? Everyone's dissatisfied. Everyone's stressed and afraid and attached to pleasure and aversive to pain. It's just normal. Accept it. Why do you think you get to be free in this world where no one is really free? And it's that the mind, his own mind, right? He's having this internal battle with himself. Doubting, do I deserve this? Is it okay for me to be happy even though nobody else seems all that happy? 
Is it okay for me to be free? And as the statue shows us and the tonka behind us, that so often these Buddha statues have the Buddha sitting with one hand uh, pointing down, and that signifies this response to Mara, uh, to his own doubt, where he says he touches the earth. He doesn't even, you know, he, it's again, it's this, I know you. He touches the earth. And then there's different interpretations of what does that mean? <laughs> the dude touches the ground. <laughs> what does it mean? Some say that he's uh, touching the earth and the earth is bearing witness to his many, many incarnations of being kind and compassionate and that he had earned <laughs> his seat of enlightenment. He'd done his work, is, is sometimes the interpretation the earth shows. He's been at it for a long time. He's a good bodhisattva. It's his turn for enlightenment. I don't like that so much, personally. Well, that's okay, but... The one I like the best is that he's just touching the earth to say, I'm part of this earth. My worth is just because I'm part of this earth. And that if you're on this earth, if you're in this human realm, and you've taken on a practice, that worth is not a question, actually. No matter what your conditioning is, no matter what your mind says, no matter how many times Mara attacks, that worthiness is our birthright, actually. And ability is our birthright. It's actually who we are being part of this earth, part of the four elements. Even if we had really bad parenting that made us feel unworthy. Even if we had bad traumatic experiences that confused our mind that we forgot about our worth. The truth is that we, you know, the Buddha just touches the earth and he says, I, we, absolutely deserve happiness. just being part of the four elements. So I don't know if you know this yet, and maybe there's a part of your mind that doesn't know this, maybe there's a part of your mind, your heart, that does know it. But even if we do know it, uh, it's not that simple. We still have to be so mindful that we know these afflictive states of mind and we learn, as the Buddha did there on his Eve of Enlightenment, to not take it so personal, to not get hooked, to not get seduced, to not get pushed over by Mara, by that state of mind that is confusion, that is ignorance 
that attacks regularly. And as the Buddha later said, that these five hindrances are going to be part of our meditation practice, are going to be part of our life. You're going to have craving and aversion. You're going to have doubt. You're going to feel anxious and worried at times. You're going to have sloth and procrastination at times. That even enlightenment, and I think that this is maybe the most important thing. So the Buddha wins the battle, and he sees through, and he says, I know you, Mara, I see you, and I banish you. Get out. He calls him the house builder. He says, I I see how you've built this house, this ego identification, and I have dismantled it. I've taken it apart. I've shattered the, what is it, ridge pole, whatever holds the roof up. I've blown the top off of this place. But Mara doesn't go away. The very next day, Mara comes back to the now fully enlightened Buddha. And over and over, after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara keeps returning. I believe in the Pali Canon, in those early uh, scriptures, it's over 40 times that Mara shows back up after the Buddha's enlightenment. And I think that this is really important for us. And maybe a lot of you are sitting here rolling your eyes and saying, I don't care about enlightenment. I just don't want to be so stressed out. But I think there's an important connotation here of what can we expect out of our practice? What is a realistic expectation of what are we going for? And normalizing the fact that you're going to have doubt. Get used to it. (laughs) Even the enlightened one had doubt. You're going to have lust. Get used to it. Even the Buddha's mind fantasized about sex get used to it you're going to have anger arising fear arising being mindful is not a it's not a lobotomy that's the bad news it doesn't just get rid of doesn't just scramble. But the potential, the more that we know our minds and normalize what it's like to have a mind and to have emotions and joys and sorrows and doubts and fears, is to have the wisdom and the discernment of when to uh, take it personal and when to see it as impersonal, impermanent phenomena that you don't get hooked into, that you don't need to suffer about. And just more, I know this quality of mind. The more you meditate, the more you practice, the more retreats like this that we attend, the more intimate we are with our mind. And then it creates this space and this freedom. And I hope that that's 
what you want because that's what you're going to get if you keep going on this path. Some of you know you've been on the path for a long time and you see how it just makes more and more room for reality of being a human being. And for me, it's one of the reasons why I love and trust Buddhism and, and the Buddha's teachings is because it's actually offering a realistic, practical experience and not some fantasy of you're going to have bliss forever. I don't trust any uh, buddy that promises me I'm always going to feel good. I mean, I, I want it. I've got the same craving. We all do. We all want to feel good forever. But even the Buddha didn't feel good forever. Now, this is, is this confusing you? Because the promise is no more suffering. The promise is not no more pain. The promise is not no more difficult emotions. The promise is not constant, never-ending bliss. It is no more suffering on that extra level of resisting pain and clinging to pleasure. This is the potential that mindfulness offers us. The hindrances will be uh, our companion. We'll become, if we can develop a friendly relationship with uh, those aspects of mind, of Mara. Welcome back, Mara. I haven't seen you in three minutes. Are you okay? Do you need anything? As the Tibetans uh, kind of took this teaching and they started to talk about, invite the demons in for tea. The demons, Maras, are demons. Rather than I hate you and go away and welcome, can I get you anything? I like to think about that. If you're going to invite the demons in through the front door for tea, uh, make sure the back door's open. <laughs> because, you know, even these mind states, these difficult hindering difficulties that we experience on the path, they're also impermanent. So we don't have to get too identified with them. They will arise in the mind and heart and body and part of your practice, and they'll pass. When we meet these experiences with aversion, with ah, or ignorance or suppression, we actually keep them around longer than when we meet these difficulties with an accepting kind as possible understanding like okay now this is arising i'm really afraid i'm really lonely there's all this lust arising there's all this anger arising there's all of this doubt relating to the experience rather than incarnating as it and saying i am this thought, feeling, emotion. Now, I hope it's helpful perspective 
to uh, think of the Buddha as uh, somebody who continued to have a real human mind and a real human experience. And maybe it makes it a little bit more attainable, what we're talking about. And obviously it gets a lot better. Uh, 40 times Mara comes back to the Buddha in like 40 years. Wouldn't that be awesome? If like only once a year you got really attacked by doubt <laughs> instead of like 100 times a day. And who knows, you know, these historical, who knows. But it's important to me and my... You know, Buddha's like my imaginary homeboy. Uh, you know, I've been studying and practicing, and I have no idea what the guy really did or taught. But um, I have a sort of, imagine, I imagine that I do. And I know that what I've been taught, that he taught, has worked wonderfully for me so far. And I want the Buddha to be somebody uh, in your life, like we talked about taking refuge. I mean, the, the most important is the Buddha inside you, your own Buddha nature. But also as we follow this path and these instructions, for it to be a relatable being, not an unattainable state, not a myth, but actually something that you can live. not trying to perfect the mind, trying to perfect our relationship to the mind. In meditation, not trying to stop the thoughts or have a always tranquil, always empty mind, but to have an awareness of the nature of mind that accepts whether that's agitated or whether it's peaceful. And we do this, as we have all day today, by first breaking our addiction to thinking. First establishing mindfulness in the body, this first foundation of mindfulness. One of my teachers early on, I forget my, what my question was, but it was something about like, okay, I'm trying to pay attention to my breath, but I just... You know, I'm watching, I'm kind of in my mind all of the time. And he said, well, watching the breath really is kind of watching the mind. Do you notice that today is that you're trying to be with the breath, but you're so aware of what your mind is doing. And then you disengage and you come back to the body and the breath. And then you get in planning again. And then you come back and then you're lost in some lust. And then you come back and then you're in a resentment and then you come back. And so by trying to ignore the mind and establish and, and maintain body awareness, you actually get more and more understanding of how the mind works and what the contents and process. And when we open to the third foundation of mindfulness, where we actually turn our attention on the contents and process and moods and patterns and emotions that arise in the mind, then you get even more uh, intimacy with it more knowing.
So that's um, that's most of what I want to share with you tonight. Now I want to take a couple minutes to shift gears and to tell you that it's also my understanding that and experience that what we're doing here, although for almost all of us is inspired by our dissatisfaction, and that we come here, almost everyone comes to meditation uh, looking for their own happiness, their own freedom, because we're dissatisfied, because we're unhappy, because we're stressed, because we're afraid, because we want some freedom for ourselves. But there is a natural, gradual, and a necessary shift that can and will happen as we develop this understanding, some, some more wisdom and some more compassion, uh, to also a more altruistic perspective where it's not just for us. Where actually the understanding that we have starts to have ripple effects. And our, uh, sometimes people come to meditation and the direction of their life really changes. I know mine did. And a commitment. Many people that come are already committed to social justice and to political and environmental uh, action and um, into uh, you know, being of service and, and helping professions. And then the practice just helps us uh, perform even better perform in those realms in a more engaged or more wise and a more compassionate way. But what I'm saying is that the outcome of awakening is always for the benefit of all beings. That it's not just about go get happy and enjoy your happiness. Go get free and then keep it all to yourself. That as we get free, the motivation becomes, how can I help? How can I be more useful? How can I use my life's energy to create a positive change? To be part of the solution in this world that is so confused. That is in so much need of wise and compassionate engaged people and that there's so few wise and compassionate people especially in the political and uh, business world that is causing a lot of problems to this planet The Buddha addressed this in one teaching where he said, it was as though I was walking through the jungle and I discovered this lost, uh, these ruins, this lost civilization. And that um, rather than just saying like, oh, cool, I found, you know, Angkor Wat <laughs> or whatever, I found the pyramids. He, uh, he said, and then I returned to 
the, the, the town and I, and I got the merchants and the business people and I brought them there to help me uncover this place and to rehabitate this place. To, to, to uncover these, this lost civilization, and I invited the community to move in. And one of the understandings of that is that as we uncover our own true nature, then we, we share that and we invite others in, and that it isn't just about this personal awakening, but it's also can we create an enlightened culture or a less confused culture, maybe enlightened too too big, but a less confused culture. And so we go forth and we invite everyone in. And we tell our friends about mindfulness. And we become an a inspiring person in our community so that people start practicing. And that that's how actually change happens. These are some of my thoughts about what we're doing here, why we're doing it. I hope that these thoughts are useful to you. Next time your mind uh, attacks you with doubt or lust or anger or judgment, or try just turning towards your own mind and saying, I know you. I know you, Mara. Silly. You can't get me. I'm meditating. I'm busy right now. Come back later when I'm brushing my teeth. Maybe I won't be paying attention. The Buddha ended most of his teachings by saying, to the people that were listening by kind of giving it all back and, and re-empowering the listener. He would, most of the teachings ended by saying, uh, this is what I know to be true, and it's time for you to do as you see fit. Rather than Buddhism being this, and you better believe it. Amen. Of a re-empowerment that just says, you know, reflect on this. Does this resonate with you? Does it sound true? Does it feel true? Do you know this to be true for yourself out of your own direct experience? Look deeply and then trust your own knowing. Train your mind thoroughly and trust your own knowing. So let's just sit for a moment before we end. May each one of us continue this path of kind awareness until we know so thoroughly the nature of our hearts and minds that we no longer suffer, no longer taking personal the causes of suffering, no longer clinging, no longer resisting 
but responding with compassion and non-attached appreciation in each moment. And together, may we create a positive change in our families, in our communities, in this country, and on this planet, this globe, this samsaric realm of existence. have some time for walking practice and then uh, the last sitting of the day will be at 9 p.m. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.